This is LA Court Report, covering Southern California's boys' high school basketball scene. Going to games, running events, hosting Zoom conversations. And now, the podcast. Welcome to the LA Court Report podcast. I'm LA Court Report co-founder Steve Wax, along with fellow co-founder Brad Enright. Our guest tonight is Whitman College head coach John Lamana. John, you've been the head coach at three different colleges in three different parts of the country, and you haven't had your 40th birthday yet. That's correct. Yeah, very lucky. (laughs) You were a Division I assistant at UC Davis. You were then the head coach at Franciscan University of Ohio. From there, you spent five years as the head coach and athletic director at Ave Maria University in Florida, which is an NAIA school. This past spring, you had the opportunity to return home to the state of Washington as the head coach at Whitman College, a national-level academic school, a program on the rise in NCAA Division III. So, Coach, many are unaware of the restrictions that you have at the Division III level in terms of practice time. Can you explain what limitations you have? Yeah, the Division Three level is uh, is an interesting level in regards to um, actually out of all the levels, including high school, and this is not a knock on us, it's just the reality, is that we have the lowest amount of contact with our players. And so um, it's an interesting dynamic because that's not something that uh, um, all of the, just the students that ended up choosing to play at the Division Three level totally understand. But it also brings a level of uniqueness to where um, – The students have a more uh, holistic experience being at a a Division III athlete than they do at the Division II or Division I level or any IA level. And uh, specifically, so I'm not allowed to have contact in terms of on the floor with my players until October. And then that will last until the end of the season. So um, preseason workouts are strictly strength and conditioning or strictly strength and conditioning with open gym stuff and there, there, there comes where you need to have creativity on how you're going to uh, interact and put your preseason and postseason workouts together with, uh, with creating a culture in which your players buy into it and uh, work together as a unit. So um, it's an interesting level. I love it though. So not to give your opponents an easy scouting report on you, but you as a coach are known for running the Princeton offense. Considering the limitations that you have in terms of how much you can do with your team, how do you structure your practices to be sure that you have enough time to install such an intricate offense? So it's a great question. Um, I I believe the the biggest mistake I know that I made early on in my coaching career was um, I created all these practice plans and and I thought I knew exactly what I needed, needed to do to implement the offense. What you don't account for is two things, lack of time and lack of understanding and comprehension of the offense. And so you have to pair things way back. And so I've learned through the progression of doing this, I'm going into about my 15th year of teaching the Princeton, where we, 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 segment, we segment it. So depending on the, the talent that we have, we'll simply just start with chin. If we have really low talent level, we just we're literally we'll just start with chin. We're not worrying with high, low, and and so on. We just literally go with strictly chin. It's easy. Um, 
and it's it's something that spaces the floor that allows the guys to to be able to to start understanding some of our concepts. Um, conversely, what we can do is as we start uh, scheduling out, we never move ahead unless we fully understand what we're doing in this moment. So I've had seasons where we've only run chin and we never got to high. I mean, it's just the reality of it. And we run sets out of chin and that's all we did. I've had seasons where we've only, where we've been able, where we didn't even run chin, where I, we started in just teaching high and we played out a high and I can go into greater details if you want in regards to what high and chin is, but where we only focused in on high and specifically high away and high over the top. We didn't go into other high specials. And so that's what allows us to gauge on the progression in which how we, we put it in. Um, I, I've only had a few years in my coaching career where we've been able to put in a full package where teams have fully understood on, on, on truly reading and how, how to implement uh, to go from high to low to chin to, to low to high to chin and so on. So um, that's, that's extremely, extremely uncommon, at least so for my career. Great. So why don't we take a second and this is audio rather than video. So without audibly saying, well, we pass to the high post and then the strong side guard cuts back door, which I don't think people are really going to be able to follow the basics of each of those calls. So yeah, let's just start with chin. Chin, be, chin spreads the floor out where we bring the whole offense above uh, the free throw line extended. So what you end up having is you have two wings, free throw line extended. You end up having a high post guy who's literally in the center of the foul line. And then you have two guards up in the slots where most courts have a volleyball line and they're, they're above or right at that volleyball line um, inside the half court. And what we're doing is we're passing the ball and, and guys are Xing off of the, off the post. Seems pretty simple in regards to what to do. Guys get confused on where to cut to, surprisingly. Some guys don't, it's pretty simple. You're supposed to cut through the opposite corner. Um, sometimes guys can't figure that out. So you got to rep it out and rep it out and rep it out. Um, and, and so, and, and the, for the simplicity of it, there's lots of complexities in regards to what does the, what does the high post guy do? And where a lot of times defenses might just sag that high post, uh, the high post defender down in mid paint or whatnot to try to take the cuts away. Well, the high post guy needs to be able to, to pop, to slip, to be able to play and not just be just a statue in the middle setting screens. So um, uh, one thing that's interesting, since it pulls the whole uh, defense up the floor, it creates wide open penetration uh opportunities at the basket too which is uh which which the spacing is awesome out of it great and the so, high and low yeah so in high what we're working on it's a four out one in all uh, so high and low is both both the same concepts you have corn you have a guy in the right corner left corner you have a guy in the um technically the right slot and left left slot with high you have what we call the pinch is going to be in let's say the right elbow and now you're going to play out of the pinch where the ball is going to be entered into the high post. And now that, that guard has an opportunity to either go down to the corner or go to the guy in the slot. Um, and there's other variations out of that. And then we make reads and reactions out of it. Um, conversely with low, the, the post player, the guards are in the same corner, corner, slot, slot position. And then we put the, um, the post in either the, the right or left low block. And then we make specific reads based off of um, how the ball is entered. And uh, the biggest thing is that we split the post and splitting the post, which like classic uh, old school LA Lake 
Lakers split the post, and then it was Miami Heat split the post. I mean, it's just classic split the post. Golden State Warriors split the post the same way. So we go through and we split the post, and it uh, and it's a very effective way to play. So the part that's beautiful is that you can go from low into high into chin into low into high into high into low into chin and so on. And so essentially it's three different motion offenses, which there's more than that, but that's the only uh, pieces that I get to. Um, those are the, uh, it's three separate motion offenses in which flow in and out of one another. So regardless if someone knows how to guard it, it's essentially good luck uh, having your players guard it. So. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, you learned this, while working with Gary Stewart at UC Davis, correct? Yeah, yes. So Gary was huge, huge, huge. So um, we we were we were when I was an assistant there. Um, Gary was looking at trying to uh, uh, figure out uh, what would be a good niche for Davis, being a high academic school, much like Whitman, um, and or Whitman is much like Davis um, in regards to the academics, and so. Um, uh, looking to find that niche and we were able to do it. We were able to find that type of player that, uh, that is a Princeton style type of kid um, that fit the college academically that fit within um, what we needed that would allow us to, uh, to compete in the big West. And, and we did fortunately. And so during my time there, we had a third place finish and, uh, and we had a, a semifinal appearance in the, uh, in the, um, um, uh, Big West uh, conference tournament. And so um, multiple all-conference players and uh, we, we had a good stretch there playing this action. John, you talked about players. How different, and you've recruited to a number of programs, how different is it or is it different to recruit a player to what you do on offense as opposed to someone that doesn't run the Princeton offense? Are there certain things that you, they need to be able to do or are there certain things that you can teach them and you're just looking for the, you know, the best player available, the best player that you can sign? So I don't look for the best player I can sign. Uh, I made that mistake. Um, actually, when I was at Ave Maria, uh, I made that mistake. We were an NAIA school, a uh, team that was struggling and we were able to, to, to have some success there and get it going. And um, the biggest lesson that I learned was uh, making sure that we don't need to go and get the best basketball player possible. We don't need to get the best athlete possible. We needed to get the best person that fit our system possible. And when I mean person, I mean the actual person, not just his skill set, but what type of personality and so forth. And so specifically we look, the first thing I look for is can he pass? If a kid doesn't, if a kid can't pass, I don't care how great he is, he can't play for us and then we don't go on him and we pass up. I've passed up on a lot of good players and um, currently passing up on good players because they can't pass. I mean, plain and simple. Uh, the second skill is shooting. And now one point that I think people make a mistake if they run Princeton or just look, if they run in all, all offenses, you need to be a great shooter, but just in general, if you're looking for shooters versus non-shooters or whatnot, it's like, Oh, they look at the percentage for me. We shoot so much during the season, out of season, our guys are in the gym shooting so much. I just need a consistent form. If a kid is shooting 28% and his form is consistent, I can get the 28% three-point shooter somewhere into the 40s. I've done it and, and I'll continue to do it. So if they have to have good form, if their form is inconsistent, even if a kid has inconsistent form and he's a 35, 36% three-point shooter, if he's not well into the 40s, we don't go on him. 
because he's he, that's gonna that's gonna trend down somewhere into the low 30s or upper 20s for for us at the college level. So, in any case, th- those are the two biggest things that that we look for. Okay, so let me put you on the spot, Coach. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it takes time to teach the spacing and the timing in the Princeton. It takes time to get those players from the upper 20s to the 40 percent. Honestly speaking, what do you think you neglect as a coach when you come up with your practice plans? I neglect really three things. Okay. <laughs> well, I say four things, actually. Let me add a fourth in there. The list will probably grow as I think about it. I neglect um, uh, OB plays, side OB and underneath out of bounds plays. We're not great at it. Um, I neglect press offense, not great at it. Uh, I neglect zone offense, don't even teach zone offense. I, and I can, that's a whole nother topic we can get into. Don't teach zone offense at all. Zero zone offense teaching. Um, and I neglect uh, teaching multiple defenses in regards to pressing and zoning and whatnot. I, I, we just don't do it. We don't have the time. And we sit there and we say, this is what we're going to do. Our wrinkles are going to be, um, you know, trapping here and there in the half court. And if we're in a situation where we're pressing full court, um, we're pretty much behind and I'm just trying to throw stuff out there to see if we can get ourselves back in the game. I mean, that's not what we do. That's uh, for anybody that's listening. I'm just in panic mode at that point. <laughs> so, yeah. How much of your, your offense is, or excuse me, how much of your practice time is devoted to five on five Princeton offense every day? Yeah. So we don't play much five on five. Um, we do a lot of five on O. And where we do and we and how we understand the reads, we do three on three and four on four on four is how we understand the reads. Um, I've noticed a lot of five on five. We struggle. This sounds weird. We struggle totally transitioning the reads to the five on five. And you say, well, then how does it work in the games? It just works in the game. So we just tend to make good reads in the games and practice. We just don't make this good of reads. And so we tried to, we try to structure it that um, uh, our weeks are structured in regards to what days do we go live? What days do we go contact and what days we go no contact. And so the structure in, in which uh, kind of builds up for the week and it leads to where the guys get excited for our contact days and they just kind of, push through the non-contact days, but that helps with our skill work and our specifically our footwork, because that's, that's what gets lost. If we do too much five on five is that the footwork just, the footwork just kind of gets uh, uh, just, it's abysmal. And so we have to just rep out the footwork uh, constantly. So. So going with that, one of the questions we had is since your practice time is so limited and you're trying to install a completely new system, how do you make sure that fun is an element of practice? So it, it comes down to my personality and attitude. And I'm not saying it's about me, but I'm saying, how, what am I like in practice? What's my demeanor like in practice? And um, so I, I practice is my most favorite part of the day. And so I bring in that joy and I talk to my guys about joy all the time. So we, I, I have joy when I, when I coach and, um, and that, comes across in practice and that that's what makes it we loosen things up because of that i i'm 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 different in regards to how i go about the coaching um uh 
I believe we're a disciplined team and I've had disciplined teams in regards to, if you look at our, our turnovers, you look at just our offensive and defensive efficiency on synergy across the board. I mean, it, it reflects the uh, uh, discipline, but we don't, there's not a lot of yelling and screaming. Um, uh, really look at, you know, how do we motivate each, each individual player? And it's not about guys kind of trying to adapt to me. I adapt to each, each guy. And, um, and I take joy and fun in that. And that's where I get my, my fun. And I think the guys feel that. And I, I do believe that both uh, Steve and Brad, you guys have coached at the division one level and for multiple different coaches. I mean, it, it, the, the head coach's demeanor and attitude really permeates the whole program. And the head coach is ornery and on edge all the time. Uh, the players are ornery on edge all the time. And uh, if the coach comes in smiling and, and loose and, and happy, then the players tend to be a little more loose and happy. And I find that the, the comprehension and the learning curve shortens a little bit when the guys are enjoying it. So what's the drill that when you say the name of the drill, you see your players eyes light up that it's that time they love going to that drill. What's that drill for your team? It's, it's when we go live five on five, cause we don't do five on five enough. <laughs> oh, they beg. They're like, can we go? Can we go? I mean, guys will beg. They'll be like, can we go live today? And we're like, and I'll tell them, you know, today's not a live day. We're not going live today. <laughs> and they're like, please. So the moment we go live, Oh, early in the year that's always when are we going to go live when are we going to go live they just want to play and um and it's not that i i uh uh neglect them from being able to play it's just uh, it, it there's there's lots of injuries that come into play when you go five on five so everything needs to be controlled and we really do control all all of that action we we don't scrimmage a ton um so anytime we can we can actually scrimmage even if it's a two-minute scrimmage they just uh, they love it so and for all the coaches listening, you mentioned five on O is such a key piece of what you do. Give us advice. How do you keep five on O from feeling rote and boring? Oh, so it's, you, you have to script it. So a mistake that I've made earlier on in my coaching career was we would do five on O, but it was, wasn't scripted. Meaning, oh, let's just go five on home. And then I would say, okay, let's, let me give the players ownership on what we do. And not that they don't know what to do, but they don't know what to do. So they, they need to be scripted in regards to, okay, so let's go this into this into this. And so we, it's literally kind of pedagogically, we, we go into it with, um, with this is what we're going to go in this part of the season. And then as we get to this part of the season, hopefully we're seeing some, some improvements or we're, we have a different wrinkle or read that we haven't introduced yet that we're going to introduce now. And so we start going through that and we script it. And that's, that's where all of a sudden the games, we start seeing guys make reads that, that you can't script in the five on O and as much as you want to, like we'll do five on O we'll do five on five half court. And I will like football. I'll call a, I'll huddle them, call a play and they go out and try to run it. It's just a mess. We get nothing out of it. I still do it, but we still get nothing out of it. Cause I'm like, they need to be able to go against defense and whatnot. It's just, it's, it just doesn't mimic what you see in the game. They just need to, they just need the movement, the pattern. And if they understand how to screen and set up a screen and use the screen and what to do after the screen, then all of those reads will start falling into place over the course of the season. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. 
If that's what you're doing, how do your players get in shape? Yeah. Um, so when we do five on O, we do five on O full court. So we don't do five on O in the half court. I never do five on O in the half court. So we do five on O and a lot of times we do five on O where they go up, back, up, back. So they're running four times. They have to sprint. We have a rule. The ball has to cross the free throw or excuse me, the, the half court line in three seconds or less off a, off a made or missed shot. So the moment the shot is made, not, Secured. Once the ball goes through the hoop, we have my assistant coaches yelling, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. The ball has to get across. And so now they are literally sprinting. And if they don't sprint, they're kicked off. And then we'll do, then we will actually will run after practice. And so, so if they're not going to run in practice, they're going to run after practice, plain and simple. So, um, so we're able to, to stay in shape in regards to that. And I do believe um, coaches always say they want to, they want to coach with tempo and whatnot. And I do believe we, we have tempo in regards to what we do, where we're, we're, we're very regimented in regards to the practice plan is extremely detailed. Um, it, it, we end at the time we're supposed to end and we move directly into what we're going to do. So if I'm not doing a good job of teaching or if I'm over talking during the, the drill, the guys aren't going to get the reps that are, that they need. So it, it forces me to talk less and it allows them to play more. And we can't be, we have a more, we have better efficiency with that, with our time that we have. Talk less, play more. However, they really need that instruction in the Princeton. So how are you able to instruct the Princeton without doing a lot of talking? So we spend the first 30 minutes of practices in our film room. We do 30 minutes of film every single day. This is, uh, if we practice, if we're not playing yet and we're practicing six days a week, we're in film session six days a week, 30 minutes. And it's, it's all broken down and it's reps. So then that 30 minutes of film work is all going to be, it's going to be a, a, a purposeful on two parts. It's going to be showing stuff that we did yesterday that, that we need to improve upon. So you see, this wasn't good as well as you see, but, but then it's flipped. See, this is what you did do well, and this is what we're trying to achieve. So we have that action going on. And then we, then we have introducing an introduction in regards to what we're going to go into to this day. And so even if it's repetitive, even if we've already been, okay, let's say chin, we've already been doing chin and maybe we just reviewed some chin. We're gonna show some perfect chin clips. We're gonna just go into, maybe if there's another aspect of chin that, that we're, we're gonna talk about, or hey, this is another wrinkle we could look at, we're gonna go into that. So they're gonna see it, they're, and they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna visually see it before they get on the floor. And so over the course, you know, one, doing that one for one practice is not that big of a deal, but over the course of doing it every single day for the course of the season, um, it really builds up and, and we start seeing that uh, uh, they start turning the corner at some point and, uh, and, and the light bulb turns on for them. So. so you have a staff that's new to the offense as well. You have a team that's new to them. How do you ensure everyone is doing something productive during practice? So, yeah, we all have, we all have roles within the program. I have a role. Our assistant coaches have roles. Obviously our team, um, our, our, our players have roles within the program and simply in regards to, let's talk about the players. Um, I don't coach, I don't coach. I, I wouldn't say I, I don't coach all the players the same, but I don't favor a player. And I know that that's, that's coaches say you should never favor a player, but, but I don't, um, 
great example. Uh, one of the best players in, in all of non-Division one basketball last year, I coached. His name was Leo Barrent. Um, he was ranked the third best non-Division one basketball player in the country last year. And um, our last regular season of the game, uh, he was taking questionable shots. I didn't like how he was playing. I yanked him out of the game. He got pissed at me for yanking him out of the game in the first half. And I just, I sat him down. And I told him, I said, if you're not going to change your attitude, I don't care. This will be your last game that you're going to play for us. And he's, he was a senior and he was the best player in the league and whatnot. And all of a sudden he changed his attitude around and he's like, okay, because he knew that I meant what I said and he went back in and he ended up putting 32 points uh, on the floor and it was awesome. And so in regards to that, I'm not going to cater. Um, it could have gone one or two ways, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just, yeah, they're, they're going to, <laughs> they're going to do what they're supposed to do and, and act and behave in a, in a proper way um, in regards to trying to get the most out of them. So, so I don't cater. And, uh, and because of that, um, our, whoever is on the lower end of playing time, on our team, you know, we're going to give them the exact same amount of attention. We do individual skill workouts during the day, and uh, we we do workouts for the for the top players as well as the guys on the bottom end of the roster in terms of playing time. So it it it, it doesn't matter. We just want each guy to grow and get better. So we were talking before we hit record that it's been said that sometimes a visually ugly practice has its positives. It means that you're challenging your players to take on skills and concepts that are past their level of understanding. Is there any truth to that statement? Oh, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement, especially if you were to come to any early practice of anybody trying to teach the Princeton. I mean, uh, one of my former head coaches and mentors uh, would kindly say we look like a bunch of pigs on ice in regards to how they play. I mean, we were just all over the place, the balls flying all, all over the place. And the thing that's interesting is you can't get angry in regards to them throwing the ball away and having just tons and tons of turnovers early, because if you do in the Princeton, then you're never going to get the backdoor layup. And I can tell you this much, there's nothing more demoralizing than you than having an uncontested layup or dunk in the half court. I mean, it's so demoralizing. It's just like you, you can't be uncontested in the half court. And we we get that a lot with the Princeton. And and so the only way you can encourage that is you got to give the guys freedom to be able to make that pass and turn it over. And and when a guy throws the ball away, and if he throws a great pass and the cut was slow, you're not you're, you're not yelling him to turn it over. You're celebrating that the pass was awesome and you're getting on the guy's rear end who wasn't cutting hard. And so, I mean, because you want to keep throwing that ball. And um, so in any case, it, yeah, I, there's, a, there's a lot of truth to that statement. Can you talk about a time a player or maybe a group of players came to you and said about planning practice, coach, there's certain things that we just absolutely need to work on in practice because we're having a tough time with it and you kind of catered your practice, not to their egos, but to their desire to learn, work on a particular skill. Oh, I think that's, that's so important um, because, I, and it's not just with practice, it's I'll talk to guys during timeouts, you know, what do you feel out there? What are you seeing out there? I see something, but I'm not playing. And so I don't always feel um, what's going on in regards to um, where the defense is and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it, it 
creates such a sense of ownership by engaging your players in that way. And it's, and it also creates a sense of trust in regards to that they can come in and share that. And um, I do tell our players in regards to that I'm always open for suggestions, but you have to understand that I won't always take your suggestion and I'm more than happy to have a conversation with them about it, but I do welcome their thoughts and opinions on, on things because it also encourages on the other side, let's say they come in with a crazy idea. It encourages a chance and an opportunity to have a conversation about it and to, for them to have further understanding. Cause a lot of times um, younger players think they know a little more than they do. And so it gives them an opportunity to, to, to learn a little bit. So it's, it's great though. So is the Princeton, a non-negotiable in your program, no matter what we're going to see the Princeton, or do you tinker with other things? I know it's uh, it's non-negotiable. Um, so I learned a long time ago that uh, if it's not broken, don't don't try to fix it. So uh, uh, I I've run different offenses and whatnot, but it's just uh, uh, the Princeton is is non-negotiable. I. I have a good feel for it. I know how to uh, instruct it and how to make game game time and in-game decisions based off of it. And uh, um, it's it's led to a lot of uh, um, very fortunate, some some success on my end because of it, so. Brad? John, when you've been doing this for a long time, teaching this offense, on the, I'm coaching you. I mean, I'm coaching against you. I'm, my team is going to be playing you. Do you see consistencies in the things that other teams try to take away from you? I mean, you know, tonight, hey, we got to go play Ave Maria, or we got to go play uh, Whitworth or Whitman. I always forget Whitman. which is it. You're good, Whitman. Whitman, sorry. Wax is looking at me like I don't know what I'm doing, and I, I forgot. There's too many wits up there. You're good. Are there consistencies that you see from your opponents trying to take certain things away? Yeah, th there are. Um, and the thing that's funny is, um, so the last five years I was at Ave Maria and I ran this offense for the last five years and there's not a lot of um, coaching turnover in that conference. And the evolution of what guys were doing in regards to guarding it was fascinating. Um, and the evolution flowed, at least in, in that, in the, my last five years, was it, it would trend in certain areas. So, like, all of a sudden, we saw someone trying to take away, take us out of the high post, the feet in the high post. And then all of a sudden, it was the next game and the next game and the next game. And it just kept, everyone started to do the same thing in regards, oh, let's take them out of the high post. And then, um, then it was, oh, let's switch everything. Last year, everything was, let's switch. Let's just switch all of their actions. Switch, 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 which was fantastic because what we ended up doing was we ended up not scoring earlier on in the shot clock and later in the shot clock. And they were, we, they got into what we call chase mode because you can't not, the NBA can do it. We can't do it. You can't switch consistently and always stay in front of the basketball and, and rotate proper. And so we just said, okay, switch. And then we would go in and we started to turn our action over. And then all of a sudden we were getting the shots from the matchups that we needed. And it was, um, it was, I was really grateful the team started to switch against us. Um, so there, there's different things. Teams will pressure. They'll say, oh, let's just pressure and crawl up into them. They're not good enough athletes. Let's pressure. Because we were, we were 
we were not the most athletic team and we haven't been, I haven't coached the most athletic team anywhere I've been in the conference. And so let's pressure, let's crawl up into them. And the Princeton is a pressure release offense. And so it's like, I want you to pressure because now all of a sudden you are starting to really give me what I want. And, um, and that's, then they'll sit there and you ask this question, I can go into a lot of details. Then they'll sag the weak side guy. I mean, you always need to be in basket, but they'll sack. They'll just say, sit in basket, sit in basket. Then all we do is skip. And now we're skipping. And we are, uh, I, last year, we were the fifth, fifth best three-point shooting team in the nation at the NAI level. We'll continue to trend in that same level at, Whit at Whitman. And, um, and so just that's fine. Sag them. We're going to kick it. The other thing that we do, which is fun, is we invert the offense. I'll put the point guard in the high post or in the low block and lower high, um, and I'll st stretch the big out. And then teams start having to switch and uh, change their lineups based off of that. And then they'll put a small lineup in, and then I'll put my big back down in the low block against their small lineup. And then they'll put their big stiff back in, and I'll put them back out on the perimeter. And so we play that kind of, we call it the game within the game, which is a lot of fun. Um, last point I'd make is teams will, one thing is teams don't zone us. And so why don't they zone us? And I talk about how I don't run zone offense. Well, I don't run a zone offense. I play Princeton versus a zone. I literally run high, run low and run chin against the zone. And it was, we were more efficient this past year in our zone offense than we were in our man to man offense. And so it was like, if you zone us, thank you. And so, uh, so in any case, we don't, we just, we just roll with it. With it. So it's, uh, it's fun. Well, John, thanks so much for spending some time with us. And you have an invitation to come back because we have to do another episode where we talk about the time you played an exhibition against the team at a federal penitentiary. I would more than happy to, to get into that. That was, and that was literally the most memorable game. I've won a conference championship and whatnot. That was the most memorable game I've ever had is uh, uh, playing in the, in the state pen. So. Well, coach, you had a series of challenges that you handled so well at Franciscan. You got to Ave Maria and took Ave Maria to the national tournament. You were coach of the year in the conference, and we know that you're going to do incredible things at Whitman. I appreciate it, Steve. I appreciate it, Brad. I always enjoy talking with both of you, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on your, your podcast and, um, and continue to support LA Court Report in any way possible I can. So. Thank you for tuning in to the L.A. Court Report podcast, an L.A. Court Report production.